Welcome to Living a Better Life podcast with your host, Madeline Golick. This is a weekly podcast exploring a variety of topics on how you can live a better life, not just physically, but in all aspects of what it means to be human living in a modern world. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not replace professional or medical advice. This podcast is sponsored by Ecophysiotherapy, where their mission is to educate, empower, and rehabilitate you back to health. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. Welcome back to our wonderful listeners. So today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about the role of physical therapy in the treatment of individuals who are breast cancer survivors. My guest today is Dr. Alex Hill. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to, to be here today. Yes, I, I, this is a topic I um, haven't done a recording on. It's a, definitely an area that I don't practice in, um, but super important. I mean, we learned some of the, um, you know, th- theory and like the practical, you know, physiotherapy skills like in university, but you know, if you don't practice it, you don't kind of remember it. So it, this is going to be like a good yep. refresher for me, um, <laughs> but hopefully really educational for those who are either going to be undergoing surgery or have undergone surgery, like that there's help that they can get for certain things they might be experiencing. Yeah, absolutely. So I figure the best place for us to start is like, tell us a little bit about you. Sure. So like I said, my name is Alex Hill and I'm an outpatient physical therapist at a hospital-based system. And I practice in Annapolis, Maryland, and I specialize in pelvic health oncology and lymphedema. So three kind of niche areas that I specialize in, but they do intersect very well together, especially with breast cancer survivors. So it's been really cool. um, The last six years that I've been a physical therapist, really specializing in those areas and developing my skill set with those, because like you said, there's not a lot of people that do this. You learn a little bit about it in school. And then it's like, oh crap, I have somebody coming into the clinic. What do I do with them? Um, so I'm very passionate about, about working with patients that are cancer survivors. What, what made you interested in pursuing more education and getting, um, you know, getting into oncology? Yeah, so um, I didn't really know that it was a potential specialty until I was in physical therapy school. And I chatted with several therapists who specialized in both pelvic health and oncology And so that was really my first real introduction to both of those specialties is that they, and they really do, like I said before, go hand in hand. Um, And being able to see the survivorship after treatment, um, a lot of times people will describe after their treatment, you know, they're used to going into the hospital and for their clinical appointments weekly or, you know, multiple times a week. And then when they're done, it's like a cliff and everything just stops. Okay, we'll see you in six months. But that's where physical therapy and rehab specialists really come in, and they're able to really help give life back into living. Um, You know, there's the term instead of just cancer survivors, there's cancer thrivers. So how can we as rehab specialists really help people thrive? And I I just got totally attached to that um, and really helping people move beyond that. And so it's been really, really cool. Amazing. I, I love the um, I love the saying or or the 
thriving part, right? Because that's really yeah. what we're trying to do, you know, post an injury or post a baby or, you know, there's there's something that's occurred in our lives. And really we're trying to like be that bridge between like the medical sort of acute um, care to like, how do you transition back into the world and live your life to the fullest? Um, exactly. So that's amazing. And that's lost a lot. That's lost a lot. Um, and, you know, support groups are always very helpful for people. Um, sometimes they can be, you know, kind of doom and gloom. And so it's really good for people to have providers that they're seeing, you know, once or twice a week for a month, two months. I have some people where they have some maybe more chronic issues or complex issues where I'll see them for six months or a year, maybe not that frequently. Um, but they can ask you those questions of, hey, like, I feel this, is this new? Or like, is this normal? Is this something I should get checked out? So, and we can really address it from a lot of different ways as, as therapists. Absolutely. Yeah. Being kind of like that bridge. I mean, we are, you know, primary, well, I don't know about the U.S. because you're in the U.S., but, you know, we're primary care givers here, yeah. right? So, you know, sometimes we see things that, you know, because we're seeing them so frequently, we hear and see things much sooner that can, we can be that bridge to be like, you know, I think you need to get this checked out, but like, oh, this is like kind of part of the process. Like, you know, here's what we're going to do about it kind of thing. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So what I, I guess what I'd like to know is, you know, okay, so you, you know, you have a client who's um, undergone, you know, some form of uh, therapeutic intervention for breast cancer. You know, what are the things that they are dealing with afterwards? Like what are some of the more common um, issues or problems uh, breast cancer survivors are dealing with where physiotherapy um, can play a really important role? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, and it can stem from initially what kind of treatment are they having? Um, so breast cancer survivors will typically have a surgery of some kind, chemotherapy, hormone therapy, and or radiation, depending on what type of tumor they have. And depending on the type of treatment they have, that will then lead to what types of impairments they have. And so a vast majority of the referrals that we'll get are for lymphedema, um, and then some other more common ones would be decreased range of motion or trouble lifting their arm overhead, um, arm weakness and core weakness as well. Um, and then pain is a really, really big one. Um, and that pain can stem from a couple different things like scar tissue from the incision sites. It could come from something called axillary web syndrome or cording. Uh, or there's even something called post-mastectomy pain syndrome which is a neuropathic or a nerve condition um, causing pain beyond the normal healing time. So those I would say are the bigger ones that we'll see, um, but we do see some diagnoses that can also include deconditioning, so trouble just kind of getting through your day or fatigue, um, balance issues, and then chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy. So those I, I would say are the major referrals that we'll get. Okay. Um, so you said a couple of turn, or you know, a couple of things, yep. <laughs> and um, we're gonna kind of dive into sort of, I, I guess, well, well, we'll dive into two of them specifically. Um, so maybe let's start with cording or auxiliary auxiliary web syndrome. Can you can you talk about like what that is and um, why it's so important to address 
this earlier? Like what should people be looking out for that might be indicators that they're getting this? And sorry, that was like three questions in one. No, that's perfect. I like, they all come together. <laughs> so axillary web syndrome or cording is essentially a spontaneous scar tissue that can form when a lymph node is taken out of the arm. So typically when they do surgeries, they'll take out one or several lymph nodes to see um, in a biopsy, is there, are there any cancer cells? But when they take out a lymph node, for some people that triggers this cording. And it actually looks and feels like a, almost like a guitar cord string coming from that incision site and can go all the way down into the arm. Um, I've had some people where it goes even all the way into the fingertips. Um, and then some people where it may, instead of going down the arm, it can go down the trunk as well. So this is really important to assess for and check for early on because the longer that it is there, the more likely it is that they're not able to lift their arm because it is very painful. It limits people's range of motion. They can't reach overhead. They can't reach behind their back. And so if they're not doing those movements like they normally would, that can lead to issues with their shoulder, like rotator cuff dysfunction. Um, I've even had some with frozen shoulder issues because they're just guarding that shoulder so much. And so there's some really easy screening tools that you can use that we um, actually just talked about with our breast center and taught, taught them, okay, if someone's complaining about pain under their arm, these are the things that you should ask them to do. And so we'll have the patient, and especially now actually in COVID times, right? <laughs> We're doing a lot of things via telemedicine and phone calls. So this is something that even the patient can do on their own and say, hey, this isn't quite right. You know, can I get a referral to, to physical therapy? So the screening is having the patient stand in front of the mirror and then raising your arm straight overhead in front of you and then raising it out to the side of you. And as you do those movements, seeing, do you have pain with it? Can you see a cord or feel a cord? And if those things are positive, that may be an indicator that you have this cording. But really the, the telltale sign is that palpable cord that you have in the arm. So you're saying they, they would go into the, those ranges of motion and then with their other hand kind of feel underneath their armpit, um, you exactly. know, in and around that area to see if there's anything that feels like a guitar string. Exactly. Yep. And if they have anybody at home or a friend or family member that can also look for them, I've had plenty of women and, um, and a gentleman that I was seeing that was a breast cancer survivor who it was somebody in their household that actually noticed it first. And they're like, hey, what's that under your arm? <laughs> okay. So really that cord. Um, is, it a, is it a common thing? Um, is it something that the physicians are screening for in their follow-ups? Like, is this something you get a lot of referrals for? Is it mostly like self-referring? Like, do clients just come to you for that on their own, or do they have to be referred? Um, so in our state, we do have direct access, so people can refer themselves to physical therapy. But in general, because at that time, because it typically happens relatively quickly after surgery, um, some people within days or weeks, others within months, but it's still soon enough after the surgery that they're in fairly constant contact with their medical provider 
And so we do get most of the referrals from their physician or from their, their nurse navigator or their PA. Um, but this is something they screen for. I would say the most common diagnosis that they actually refer them for is decreased range of motion. Um, they might put in their notes, you know, possible cording or something like that. Um, but anytime somebody says, I have pain under my arm and I can't raise my arm, usually that's a flag for providers to say, hey, let's get you into physical therapy and actually get you assessed for it. Uh, do you find that the physicians are readily referring for that? Like, do they? Are, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. And I think um, especially after we did our in-service for them and they were more aware of it, and especially um, at most cancer centers, there's nurse navigators who can kind of triage and screen patients when they call in and say, hey, I have this symptom, like, what do I do? Um, and so I think once we gave that information a little bit more and why, is it, why it was important to get them in sooner, I, we have seen an uptick in those referrals. Um, and the treatment for it usually takes, you know, one to several visits to get the cording out, where we use some manual therapy to actually, like, break up the scar tissue. And we give lots of stretches um, and do other manual therapy just to make sure that that cording stays out once we get it out. Gotcha. Okay. Let's talk about lymphedema. Um, if you could define for people like what that is, um, maybe even also kind of discuss a couple of signs and symptoms, because again, in this, you know, pandemic, right, people are having, people can't access like medical care quite as easily. Um, so, you know, what should be they like, what should they be looking out for? And, you know, like, why is it important to treat it? You know, anything and everything you can kind of <laughs> throw at me about it. I love it. All the things lymphedema. <laughs> so lymphedema is an abnormal um, or excessive accumulation of lymphatic fluid in a particular area. Um, the lymphatic system is all throughout the body, and I describe it to people like kind of like a highway system. And so it helps to move that lymphatic fluid. It's part of your immune system, and so it's very important. And when it gets damaged, so if you've had, again, surgery where lymph nodes are taken out, if you've had radiation where the lymphatic system is damaged, that, is, that can be a trigger for lymphedema to start to occur. Um, for breast cancer survivors, it, the lymphedema will occur in that, what we call quadrant. So if they had right breast cancer, they had lymph nodes taken out of the right side, the lymphedema and that swelling would only occur, if they do develop it, um, would only occur in that right arm, the right breast, the chest, and their upper back. It wouldn't, I get this question a lot, it would not spread to other parts of the body unless you have some other underlying things going on. Um, so typically for breast cancer survivors, especially if we get them before surgery and, we, and we're able to assess them, what we'll do is we'll measure their arm at intervals so we can calculate what their circumference is and the volume is of their arm. So if we know that, especially before surgery, then after surgery, if they start to feel that their arm is heavy, if it looks puffy, um, if it's kind of achy, just doesn't, something doesn't quite feel right about it, especially if they have rings or they wear a bracelet, 
and it just feels tight. They can't get it off and on. They have indentations in the skin. Those would be indicators for lymphedema. Um, in the summertime, especially with it being hot and humid, things can get a little bit more puffy. Um, and especially if you're wearing sleeves and you notice that what that sleeve on that side feels tighter, those would be potential signs of lymphedema. So um, once you get lymphedema, it can be treated, and again, by, by physical therapy or occupational therapy as well. So it's definitely important to catch it early. And so with our prehab appointments, we talk a lot about what are the warning signs, what are ways you can reduce your risk for lymphedema, um, and really explain it so it's not this thing that people are so fearful of. Um, so it's, it's definitely very prevalent among breast cancer survivors, and mo I think it's like 90% of survivors will, if they do develop it, will develop it within the first three years. So that's when we definitely want to be screening and monitoring for it. I like the, um, you know, the idea of doing the like pre-surgery, because I think, mm -hmm. I think that we're, you know, up here, you know, I work with um, a, a prostatectomy. Uh, post prostatectomy, mm -hmm. um, and I've had you know conversations with the specialists about like, can I you know it would be really helpful if I could see them beforehand, right? So that we yeah. could kind of figure out how to do the exercises. I can do a lot of education, get them set up, so they kind of know what to expect going forward. And I've and I've, and I think that re does reduce some of the stress and anxiety, like because then you know, mm -hmm. okay, here's what to expect. Here's what I need to do. Um, and it's a great way for us to, you know, begin that connection, but it's great also for baseline, right? So those pre-measurements yep. so that you can then yeah. monitor and see, um, you know, if something is changing. You mentioned, um, I have a question about reducing risk factors. And the other was, um, you mentioned that if you develop, lymph excuse me, lymphedema, you can treat it. Uh, I'm curious mm -hmm. as to what the treatment looks like and like, can you get rid of lymphedema? Sure. Really good questions. Um, so we'll start with the risk reduction practices first. Um, so there was actually a very large study done a couple years ago that looked at things that historically we've told people not to do or things to avoid. Um, some of the bigger things would be not taking blood pressure on that side, not getting needle stick, so like blood being drawn on that side, um, just basically avoiding everything on that side. Um, and they actually found that there wasn't a, a statistically in, significant increase in risk for developing lymphedema doing those things. Um, that being said, I've worked with people that they had blood pressure drawn or blood pressure done on that arm and a day or two later they started noticing swelling. Um, so I, I caution people about doing it, but I also tell them, you know, if it happens, it's not life or death. It's, you know, don't freak out about it. Um, just continue to monitor and then we can, we can treat it. Um, some other things would be avoiding getting a sunburn because those are all, and with the risk reduction practices, we're basically trying to decrease any type of trauma, infection, or increased load on that arm, essentially. Um, I caution people that have animals that have pets at home 
Um, if you get a scratch on that arm, make sure you clean it, get some, you know, Neosporin or antibiotic on it and monitor. You want to make sure that you don't get an infection in that arm because that can be something that triggers the lymphedema as well. Um, I've had some people that they get a bug bite <laughs> and they can, that triggers it. So things like, you know, just being smart when you're outside with wearing a sleeve, bug spray, sunscreen, that kind of thing. Um, and it really comes down to in terms of risk, um, you know, how many lymph nodes did you have taken out? What other treatment did you have? Um, and what is your innate lymphatic system look like? Um, you know, I, I said before, I describe it like a highway system. If you've got a 10 lane highway plus side streets that that fluid can move from, you're probably going to be less at risk for getting lymphedema than somebody that has three lane highway and no side streets. So it's easier for that fluid to get backed up. Um, so those would be kind of the um, main things for, for lymph reduction practices. Um, and then other things like avoiding saunas and hot tubs, because again, hot water, hot environment, you're just going to increase that lymphatic fluid. Um, and then traveling by plane is another one. So typically, if people are at a higher risk for developing lymphedema, even if they don't have lymphedema, I have a lot of women and men that like to wear a compression sleeve on the plane just to be safe. Um, because of that cabin pressure change, that's what can allow that swelling to actually occur in, in the arm. So there's a whole laundry list of things. Um, and so that's why it's always good to just have a handout for it. Um, and the National Lymphedema Network is a really great resource for that I point people towards um, for things like exercise and travel and that kind of thing. Um, so now if they do get lymphedema, um, treatment include the gold standard is um, complete decongestive therapy or CDT. And so our goal is always to get people in a stage zero or one of lymphedema. So there's stage zero would be they're at risk for lymphedema, but they don't really have any signs or symptoms of lymphedema. So essentially all of our breast cancer survivors that have lymphedema taken out that have had radiation are technically a stage zero. Um, stage one would be where the, the swelling is reversible, so it kind of comes and goes. Um, stage two is where the swelling is kind of always there. They might start to have um, a little bit of fibrosis with it. It gets a little bit more firm. Stage three is where we really start to see some, some changes, some skin changes. Um, and so, again, like you said, the prehab is so important because if we can catch it in stage one or two, we can't, there isn't a cure for lymphedema, but we can bring it back down to stage zero. Um, and so we use that CDT treatment to get to that point. And so there's four main parts of the CDT. And so they include skin care. So we want to make sure the skin is healthy, moisturized using lotion. Um, exercise. So we'll give specific exercises to help with lymphedema. And then in general, just keeping a healthy weight. So a higher BMI can increase your risk of lymphedema as well. Um, the manual lymphatic drainage, or um, it's essentially a very gentle manual technique to help facilitate movement of that fluid out of that particular region. That's another big one that we'll actually teach people how to do at home. And then the fourth one would be compression. And so if somebody comes in with a lot of swelling, um, 
if we did measurements beforehand and we see that it's, you know, 20% bigger than the unaffected arm, we want to do that compression wrapping to make that arm smaller as close as we can to what it was before, before treatment. Um, once we get that arm down to an acceptable size, then we can transition them to a compression sleeve. And so that's what most people are kind of familiar with um, is wearing a sleeve or even a glove if they have swelling in their hands. So those are kind of the four main things is the, the skincare exercise, the massage and then the uh, compression. Thank you. That was very uh, detailed, and, I, and I'm and I'm certain you know that there are people out there uh, that are going to really appreciate those uh, those details. Um, you know, even like family members who have loved ones that are going to be undergoing, right? Um, it'll be great for them to know so that they can support you know their partner, their spouse, their mom, you know, their friend um, in, in paying attention to some of these, uh, some of these things. Okay. So those are, you know, those are kind of, I, I'm going to say uh, in air quotes, like more orthopedic type of um, yeah. hands-on manual <laughs> therapy. Um, but I want to talk a little bit, I want to transition now and talk a little bit about the pelvic health side. Um, and not just the, well, not just the pelvic health side, but even like the biopsychosocial you know, approach um, that we tend to see more often in pelvic health, but certainly it's it's out there um, in in the ortho realm. Um, so, I guess my first question is, you know, and this is more for like therapists who want to get into this realm or um, are in pelvic health. Like, what do we as physical therapists need to consider with this population when it comes like from a biopsychosocial perspective, what challenges um, do breast cancer survivors typically experience so that we can pay attention to it? That wasn't a very yeah, good question. No, it was <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't word it very well. I was like, how do I word this in a really good way? But hopefully you get what I'm saying. Like, what should physiotherapists yes. be considering outside of the biosphere? Yes, I love it. No, that's perfect. <laughs> um, so I think a, a really prevalent um, concern for um, women or people that identify as women, um, cancer, breast cancer survivors, is their identity with their breasts. Um, you know, a lot of people find that it, it's part of their femininity, it's part of being a woman. And to then have something um, so earth shattering happen to that part of your body, um, I mean, it turns people upside down, you know. Um, and then now on top of that, for people that are having surgery, even if it's a lumpectomy where they take out just the tumor and the surrounding tissue, um, you now have a scar on your breast and you may look at it a little bit differently or fear what your partner might be thinking about it. Um, whether you've been with somebody for decades or if you're in the dating scene, you know, to talk about that. Um, let alone if you're somebody that has had a total mastectomy with or without reconstruction, um, you know, for women that have not had reconstruction and they keep it what's called, quote, flat, um, and you have no breast, you have no nipple unless you get something like a 3D nipple tattoo, which are really just 
fantastic things um, that there's some really cool um, companies that that do that. Um, but now you're looking at your sexuality as well. Um, if your breasts were part of your erogenous zone as part of your sexual health, you now need to find out something else that can be that. Um, and so there's a lot of self-image um, and being able to figure out who am I now? How do I wear a bathing suit? You know, how do I wear different types of tops that these things that you, you don't, you never thought about before um, can be very, very challenging. Um, and unfortunately, I've had a lot of people over the years, I've, I've been a, a PT now for six years and in that like short time frame, um, I've had way too many people to count that this impacts their intimacy with their partner so much that it has led to maybe the demise of their relationship if, if it's not being addressed. And unfortunately, and there's a ton of studies out that have looked at providers asking about your sexual health and providers aren't comfortable talking about it. I mean, this goes from physicians, nurses, physical therapists. I mean, people just aren't comfortable talking about it. And that does such a disservice to patients that are dealing with these side effects that nobody, nobody tells you about this when, when you're getting a mastectomy. Um, they talk about the different sensation change or range of motion or, you know, healing things, but not this, like you said, this, this psychological component to it. Um, and I find that that's really a key part in what I can do, you know, keeping it obviously within our scope of practice as, as physical therapists, um, but screening for those things like this, you know, you've had this change of sensation. What can we do to help? Who can we refer you to? So I work a lot with sex counselors and family counselors and marriage counselors just on how to communicate, how to find other areas that can be still sexual for you. Um, and again, I talked about at the beginning that, you know, that survivorship cliff. It's like, okay, but what now, how do I navigate this? Um, and I find that because we have more time with, with our patients, we see them more often, we're able to build that rapport. It's one of the one of my favorite things about being a PT is being able to talk about these things and get them the help that they need. Um, so I think that's definitely a huge component and just, you know, it really can take a toll on their mental health. Um, so that's kind of in terms of the, the breast or kind of the, the quote, the top half. If we look at the bottom half or the pelvic area, so this is where I love that I kind of specialize in these two areas because then I can also screen for the pelvic issues. So for breast cancer survivors who have had hormone therapy, for example, um, and it plummets your estrogen, you go from being premenopausal one day, start taking the therapy, and you go to postmenopausal the next day. Um, you know, it's not this progressive gradual change and all of a sudden you have vaginal dryness, you have pain with intercourse. And again, it's talked about, but not, not necessarily what you can do about it. Um, and so for pelvic health, physical therapy, we can recommend different lubricants, different moisturizers. We can figure out what muscles are actually causing you pain and work on those with you. And again, it's, it's finding that 
um, that new sexuality, that new sensual part of yourself, like how can we transition now from being a patient to now this new kind of new normal? Thank you. That, that, I think that was really um, good to point out those things uh, for points of just, again, screening awareness, you know, so sometimes just asking a person like, how is things going? right? Yep. Can be really exactly. helpful, like that, you know, in building rapport, number one, but number two, like, hey, you know, we care and we recognize that, you know, it's not just a physical change. There's other things happening. Um, but we also know like in persisting pain that psychosocial factors can ramp up or ramp down pain, right? So, so kind of mm -hmm. having an awareness of these things to make sure that proper referrals are being made, multimodal treatments, you know. Um, so I think that's helpful, you know, just for physios who may be new or have never worked with this population, just to like consider, you know, outside of like, how's your shoulder range of motion? I mean, probably not going to talk about it necessarily the first day, unless you're a pelvic health, <laughs> unless you're a pelvic health physio, maybe you do. Um, <laughs> But, you know, just kind of in the back of the mind, keep being aware that like, yeah, they might be dealing with, you know, emotional, they might be dealing with grief, um, all of these things that, um, you know, they may need uh, additional support for. Um, okay, so you sort of talked about um, hormonal replacement therapy and changes in estrogen and that that could lead to uh, dryness and painful intercourse. What about um, like chemo? Um, do does does the does the treatment of chemo uh, and obviously radiation like does that have impacts on pelvic health as well? Yeah, so um, radiation for breast cancer survivors anyway wouldn't necessarily affect pelvic health, um, but it can cause um, a lot of fatigue, um, which people don't really realize it. I mean, it kind of kicks your butt towards the end of radiation and, and the weeks afterwards. Um, so that's definitely something that we can, can work on with people. Um, and then chemo, you know, there's so many different types of chemo and different regimens that people are on. Um, I'd say something that is very prevalent would be chemotherapy induced peripheral neuropathy. Um, which is like pins and needles in your hands and feet, or you have, you, you can't grip as well. Um, you might have pain in your hands and feet. And so you can extrapolate that to pelvic health and sexual health, where if you like a certain position and you can't support yourself on your hands, or if you are trying to please your partner or yourself and you can't really feel it or it hurts too much, that can definitely impact you. Um, and really same thing with fatigue. If people are too tired to do anything, that's definitely going to impact you. Um, and so from a pelvic health perspective, one of my, one of my favorite handouts is actually a handout on sex position and different reasons for them. So in my notes, I caught like orthopedic considerations for sexual activity, right? You need a <laughs> good way, insurance friendly way of documenting it. Um, but you can talk about, okay, so if you're tired, maybe you can do positions where you're on your side or you're on your back, you know, different, we can kind of work with things that they can still be intimate with their partner, but it doesn't completely wipe them out or increase their pain. That's great. Thank you. Um, 
Okay. So, I mean, you, and you already kind of addressed this already uh, in the way that you've been answering the questions, like what we as PTs would be doing. So, you know, figuring out if there's a tight muscle, working with that muscle. You talked about lubricants and positions and, you know, what to do with the neuropathy. So, so is there anything else from like a PT perspective, treatment perspective that you, um, you know, from a, uh, and also from a pelvic health perspective that you would be doing with, uh, with the, the breast cancer survivors? Did we miss anything? Um, I think balance can also be an issue and, and core strength as well. So with the chemotherapy, again, if they have the neuropathy, um, especially if they have underlying things like diabetes or if they've had balance issues even before treatment, they can have a lot of balance issues. And if you think about how people typically fall, they try to catch themselves on their hands. And if they just had surgery, we don't, we don't want people falling. Um, so we definitely will work on balance as well. Um, I think I mentioned before the deconditioning. So, you know, talking about energy conservation, um, having help around the house, but how can we progress your exercises in a safe way? That's really a, a major concern that a lot of people have is, okay, I'm a cancer survivor. What can I do that's safe? Like, how do I get back to running? How do I get back to CrossFit? How do I get to playing with my kids again. Um, so that I think is another really common thing that we'll work on with people. Um, and then there's one other thing that I was thinking of. Put my mind. <laughs> It'll come back and that's okay. <laughs> You'll be, you know, feel free to interrupt in the middle of the sort of next question. Um, I get so excited talking about all this stuff. And my mile, my mind's going a mile a minute. <laughs> for sure. I guess a, a question I have is like, do you have any tips or advice for physiotherapists that are just starting out in oncology? Yes. So, um, for me, it was a little different because I did a residency right after physical therapy school where it was a, a year-long program um, mainly focused on women's health, but it did include a lot of breast cancer and gynecologic cancer. Um, but within that, what I, what I found so helpful was having a mentor. Um, so for new physios or, um, you know, physios that are wanting to get into oncology, reach out a really good place that I've learned is Twitter um, that I've, I've been able to find a lot of networking and just finding other you know physical therapists around the world and organizations and your podcast and you know all these different resources that you can find on Twitter people that send out new articles and it's just amazing the the different resources um, and actually in getting ready for this, I put out a call on, on my Twitter to see, Hey, what are your guys' favorite resources? <laughs> what would you recommend? Um, and so, like I said, finding a mentor, I think would be definitely hands down. Number one. Um, there's a couple podcasts that are really good. Um, the Onco PT, um, helped me a lot when I was studying for my, my board certification last year. Um, and then finding different continuing education courses as well. That's definitely a really big thing. No, that's, that's, that's great. Um, I guess uh, I did put this in the questions, but um, how 
in your personal experience, how do you decompress from your day? Because I imagine this is emotionally <laughs> challenging, right? Uh, and I mean, I get, you know, I, burnout is a thing, right? Like emotional burnout is a thing. And I'm just curious, you know, uh, since you've been doing it for a while, like what are some good ways that you, um, you know, unload your sort of emotional experiences, you know, helping these people and helping them work through some really challenging times. Um, and this is, you know, I guess maybe to give tips to new PTs getting in, like, you know, to expect, like, should they expect to experience like some emotions when working with this population? That is such a good question. Um, and I feel like I am still figuring it out. Um, I, I definitely have developed some strategies over the years, but I can still remember the first patient, um, that I was working with, she was a breast cancer patient and she was, I think two or three years out and I was working on her and just with just some chronic scar tissue, some chronic pain. And I noticed one day a, a little lump and I was like, this, this wasn't here before. It's not quite feeling quite right. Um, sent her to her oncologist and she had had a recurrence. Um, and she came back for her next visit and she just broke down in tears. Um, she was both so grateful that she had been working with me, but absolutely devastated. And that was my first experience with somebody that I had kind of helped with finding this out. Um, but also somebody that was newly diagnosed. I mean, like it, I had seen her like two days after she got the news. Um, and I, like, I will just, I will never forget that because I was just, I ended up taking off the next day of work because I was so devastated for her. Um, and so, you know, that's happened two other times. One with a, um, somebody that had, uh, tonsillar cancer and one that had prostate cancer. And it, it, that never gets easier. Um, but in general, so, I mean, that is with people getting into this specialty, that is something that you kind of have to be mindful of. Um, for me, and like you said, this, there are some heavy days, there are definitely some heavy days. Um, but for me, what I like to do is imagine that I have a balloon and for those people that I see in it, and I mean, this can go for any, any specialty, right? You sometimes just have those days. Um, and you don't necessarily want to bring it home to your family. And so I, I imagine a balloon and I appreciate the experience. I appreciate the patient and that session and what I learned um, and really self-reflect on it. I imagine putting it into this balloon and I put all of my cases for the day in that balloon and I'm doing this in the car on my way home. And then I get home, I take a breath and I just imagine that balloon kind of floating away. Um, so appreciating it, um, getting what you can out of it, but not letting it weigh you down like a ton of bricks. Um, so for me, who's a very visual person, um, that has been really helpful. Um, and also just, you know, as healthcare providers, like help, you know, self care, um, and same thing for caregivers. There's also caregiver burnout. Um, and as rehab professionals and as healthcare professionals, we both have, have both the healthcare burnout and the caregiver burnout. 
Um, so I think it can sometimes be a double whammy. Um, I'm a big proponent of counseling, you know, talk with somebody to find what, what strategies would be really good for you. That's been really helpful for me in managing this. And, and if you're not caring for yourself, how can you care for your patients a hundred percent? Um, so I think that's been really helpful. Um, and then for me, self-care is going on hikes. Like I love being in nature. I'm looking outside my window with lots of green, like I need the green. So for me, that's really helpful. Um, and just kind of stepping away from it. But at the same time, again, re reflecting back and appreciating what you got out of that, that encounter. Thank you. That was, that was, I, I like that visual, um, you know, that sort of mindfulness meditation, like, you know, um, mm -hmm. trying to take out what you can from the experience and, and letting it go to move forward. Um, definitely agree with you about the self-care. Definitely agree with the counseling piece too, right? Like having a place where you as a professional can talk to another professional <laughs> and work through yeah. strategies, right? Because they have to do the same thing right? They got to exactly. de-stress from there, <laughs> right? So th they often, you know, have, have those strategies in place, right? So I, I think that's uh, definitely an important thing when you're dealing with, um, you know, a, a population that, you know, there's going to be a lot more emotionally charged, you know, conversations and things that can happen. But um, thank you for that piece um, and entertaining the question that I didn't you know, didn't, you didn't know it was coming. Um, <laughs> it was, yeah, I mean, I, and it's so, it's so important to talk about. Um, it's so important to talk about. So I'm, I'm really glad that you asked it. <laughs> and the that. universe decided that it was meant to be part of this podcast because it just literally <laughs> popped into my brain. Um, so I guess, I, I guess my final uh, question to you is, um, you know, if people are in your area and want to access and need to access care, where can they find you? Um, if they're not in the area, but are like interested in following your journey or other PTs, like where can people find you and follow you? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm in Annapolis, Maryland, and I'm at the Anne Arundel Medical Center. Um, and it's pretty easy to, to find that information online. Um, and then my Twitter, like I said, I'm a big proponent of Twitter and the PT fam. Um, but my Twitter is at Alex Hill PT. Um, and then I also in the midst of COVID, like a lot of other people looking to see, okay, what else can I do uh, with all my downtime? Um, I also started a professional Instagram page um, called the Onco Pelvic PT. And um, with that page, I, because I'm so passionate about both pelvic health and oncology, because there's such underserved populations, I try to put out content that is relevant for both providers and for patients. Um, so those are the, the two main places that I, that I kind of do my social media on. Amazing. And for anybody who's like driving or like can't doesn't know the spelling, etc. We will put those links in the show notes yeah. to make it to make it easy for you to uh, to. We love the links. Yeah, the links are super helpful. Uh, Alex, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to me about this because, like I said, it's not an area that I practice in, um, and I really wanted to learn more, and I wanted to make sure that like I help spread the word about, you know, PT in this realm. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. It was amazing. Like I said, I, I think that's so important to talk about this and the, 
like you said, the ortho things that come from being a cancer survivor, but what are those other things that people aren't talking about, but that are happening? So this was fantastic. So thank you so much for, for allowing me to be on. Not a problem. So also, I want to thank our listeners for joining in on the show. You know, if you think this is a relevant podcast uh, for somebody that you know, you know, please share it with them. Um, and, you know, we would love for you to subscribe to the podcast. And I guess, you know, I don't normally ask too many things on the podcast, but what I would say is, you know, if you've been enjoying the podcast, I would love if you could leave us a review on whatever platform you are listening, uh, you know, cause that helps with the algorithms and us getting noticed and, you know, more people, uh, you know, seeing the podcast and, you know, you just never know whose life you may change by, uh, you know, sharing this podcast with them. So that is my ask for this week. And I say thank you for listening and till next time. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to Living a Better Life podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show to stay up to date with our latest and greatest episodes. We would also love to hear your comments, suggestions, and reviews. Thanks again. Until the next episode. Bye for now.